I was reading about a man named Mark Landis. Mark Landis, you may not be familiar with him, but he is one of the premier art forgers in the last 30 years. He had a somewhat troubled youth, but he had great skill in forging masterpieces of art, forging them that look just like the originals. For over 30 years, he made headlines doing this, and actually, he didn't commit any crimes other than misrepresenting the artwork to museums around the country. He actually fooled some 45 art museums in accepting his work. And uh, he, is, he is quite an interesting character. They would accept these fakes into their collections thinking they were the real thing, that he was some kind of an art patron who was donating his collection to museums. He would use aliases, and he would even dress like a Jesuit priest. And uh, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of art history, and he could easily come across as an eccentric art collector. His skills with a pencil and a paintbrush were undeniable. He often used a magnifying glass looking at very nice prints of original pieces of art. And with meticulous attention to detail, he would copy exactly what he sees, religious icons, impressionistic, modern works. Uh, he recreated the old masters in astonishing accuracy. And his tools were amazing. He used magic markers, pins, and frames that came from Walmart. And yet, uh, a proper art forger probably wouldn't use any of those tools, and yet he still duped many art curators of all these museums around the country. These museums and the curators could not tell the difference between the original and what they thought was the original, which was really a forgery of the original. His fakes were so convincing, and he knew exactly what to say when he met with the leaders of these museums. One museum director explained that Landis would imply that he would have more paintings that he just might donate and possible endowments from the family's estate. This museum director admitted he knew right where to hit us in our soft spot, art and money. <laughs> and uh, it says something about uh, uh, the system that is known as curating art pieces. But uh, Mark Landis uh, fails and it pales in comparison to what the Apostle Peter is teaching us through the second letter of Peter. If you've been with us, you know that Peter, uh, the second letter of Peter, basically is divided into four major sections. Uh, first of all, the believer's nature, which is the work of God in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the passage that Bill read for us this morning. And then when we get to it, the next section is from verse 12 through the end of chapter 1, which is the believer's nurture, which is the word of God. So Peter is setting up this foundation in chapter 1, and then all of chapter 2 is the believer's nemesis, or the war of false teachers. He is warning that there is danger from within. There are false teachers that abound, just like in the Old Testament, there were false prophets. And so he's warning us about this, and these false teachers have more at stake than Mark Landis did in his art forgeries, because they are forging, forging uh, a spiritual life which is untrue. Then in chapter 3, Peter returns to our blessed hope, the believer's hope, and that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we are going to look at some qualities in just one quality, actually, out of, the chap out of chapter 1. Remember in verses 4 and 5, uh, well, beginning in verse 3, 
talking about the knowledge, remember knowledge is a key word in 2 Peter. It occurs some 16 times in 2 Peter. So there's this aspect of we mentally assent to the truth and we need to have the knowledge so that we are not tricked, that some forger of spirituality does not trick us and deflect us from the true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 3, it says, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has the power each day to live life of godliness. He's talking about the present time. And then in verse 4, he says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. He's talking about the future when we are glorified, when we go into heaven, and we are no longer faced with false teachers and difficulties in this earth. So Peter is laying the groundwork for what he says next, and it's all about cooperation with God. The question is, is do you know if you're growing spiritually? How do we measure if we are growing spiritually? Are we somewhere further down the road now than we were a year ago, or five years ago, or 20 years ago? We better hope so. And Peter gives us some qualities here in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. He gives us eight qualities, and we're going to look at each one of these because I find when I read through a list like this, that it's very easy for me to think that I know what each one of those phrases or words means, but really, what is the Bible saying about this? What is God conveying to us in a list such as this? So in verse 5, he says, Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith. Faith is the first quality that we see. He's already introduced it back in verse 1 when he's <clears throat> referring to Christians who he's writing to. And those who receive this faith at the same time as ours. Notice that it is a received faith. It's not something that we work up in our flesh, in our mind. It is something that we are given. It is a gift from God. And so Peter goes on that there needs to be spiritual growth. Anything that's alive grows. Think of a baby. We love babies, but we don't want to be changing diapers when they're 20 years old. You know, we want them to grow up, to mature. Think of plants. Think of anything. We want it to grow. Our crops, when you plant the seeds are nice, but we want a crop. We want fruit, uh, produce at the end of the cycle. And so this is what Peter is concerned with because he knows that if we are not growing and we are not mature in the faith, that <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, we will be subject to the, the attacks of Satan and subject to the attacks of the false teachers. And he wants to make sure that believers understand and have this steady focus so that when everything looks adverse, when everything looks difficult, when false teaching comes into our lives, that we can detect it, determine it, and understand that our walk of faith is with the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5 there, he talks about, uh, he gives us an imperative, applying all diligence in your faith, supplying all diligence. In other words, this is going to be work and effort, this cooperation with God, because there are two extremes. One extreme says that uh, I'm just going to let go and let God. In other words, I'm going to sit in my rocking chair, and if God wants me to do anything, to be anything, he'll do it. Okay, that's one extreme. The other extreme in the other ditch in the highway of faith is the extreme where I've got to do everything. That I've got to produce good works. I've got to produce my own spirituality, and that's all legal. So uh, we need to be in the correct pathway with, between the guardrails of God's word. And so the good word here is cooperating with God. 
We don't resist God in his work to us. He's already provided us everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need to pray for the power. He is, all we need to do is appropriate it, cooperate with God. So we come to this first uh, item here. It is faith. It is faith. One thing about the spiritual life is it just doesn't happen naturally. When we cooperate with God, then many things can happen in our lives. I think about when I was in junior high, my sister, older sister was in high school, and she had a boyfriend, and his friends, they played football, and we'd go to the football games. And I liked all the, wow, these guys, they're getting all the attention, and it looks like they're having a lot of fun and stuff. So when I got to high school and decided to play football, what I didn't realize is you had to go to two-a-day practices in August, and then practice every night, and it was, it was work, it was hard work. Uh, and uh, there was very little glory involved, especially if you sat on the bench like I did. And so that was an aspect here. The spiritual life is a journey, as Paul describes it elsewhere, as a marathon, this race that we're in. But we find that there is the meaning of faith. We take this first thing, and we think we know what faith is. And perhaps we know somewhat of what faith really is. But faith is always placed in an object, and our faith is only as good and as powerful as the object it's placed in. And it's, it's basically, when we have faith in something, we think we're placing it in the facts of what we know. Uh, for instance, like when we go uh, take a trip on an airplane, we may not understand all of the aerodynamics of the aircraft, but we do know that it'll get us to where we're supposed to go. And so by faith, we're trusting in this machine, as well as in the crew and the skill of the crew to get us there safely. We cannot leave one foot on the ground as we try to travel. We have to place our whole selves in the facts of air travel. And sometimes, most of the time that's good, sometimes it doesn't work out the way that we think. But the meaning of faith, there's four biblical usages of this word faith. The first one is personal confidence, personal confidence. And that is the issue of being fully persuaded fully persuaded in the facts of what is being presented to us through Scripture. Uh, and there are three elements of this. And the first one is saving faith, the second one is serving faith, and then sustaining faith. Saving faith, of course, is that implanted confidence that what God says in his word, what Jesus Christ says about himself, is true, and that these promises and provisions lead us to rest ourselves, just like getting on the airplane, rest ourselves in God's care and trust alone in Jesus Christ to save us for eternal life. Uh, faith means confidence, trust, to hold something that is true, and it must have confidence. When we think of John 3.16, for God so loved, and you can put your name there, for God so loved Gary that he gave his only begotten son that if Gary believes in him, he will not perish but have everlasting life. Even though the world may tell us that that is not a truth statement, what we believe that we place our faith in it based on the data of Scripture. So there's saving faith. Then there is serving faith. There is serving faith that God bestows upon us, that faith, the ability to serve within the church, within the world, that uh, we have unique and special ways of serving Him. When we did our study on spiritual gifts, that uh, Holy Spirit enablement for the common good of the body of Christ, we see that uh, we both might have the spiritual gift of, say, teaching, and yet it goes through our personalities that can show up a couple different ways. So there is serving faith that God is going to enable us to accomplish what he's called us to. 
And there is sustaining faith or sanctifying faith, which lays hold of the power of God for our daily life. When he tells us back up there, he's given us everything for life and godliness, that his power is available and that we can have dependence upon him. It's reflected in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, where it tells, Paul tells us, therefore we have been buried with him through uh, baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So there is personal confidence when we look at God's word and we trust it. We allow God to use us in the sense of believing in him. Then another usage of the word faith, another meaning, is the doctrinal announcement or the creedal announcement, the faith, and we see that in Scripture. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the, on the earth? Luke 18, 8. There's this idea where faith is the whole package of doctrinal and creedal theology that we find in Scripture. The third biblical usage is this implanted divine characteristic. There's a divine characteristic in believers in Jesus Christ that comes solely from God through the Holy Spirit. It may signify faithfulness in a believer is faithful towards God. It is given, it's a given divine characteristic, and it appears in Galatians chapter 5 when you think of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice fruit is singular, even though there are nine graces listed in that passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, God, goodness, faithfulness. So it's this divine implantation, if you will, of faith for faithfulness by God. So that's the third biblical usage. The fourth biblical usage is, is the title for Jesus Christ, for the Messiah. And we see that in Galatians chapter 3, where we see that Christ is the object of our faith. Galatians 3.23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Galatians 3.25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So faith is synonymous with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ there. So it's a title of Christ. That's the meaning of faith, faith the, the four biblical usages, and Secondly, the necessity of faith. Why do we need faith? And it's the necessary means of salvation or the channel. When I think of the irrigation uh, channel up here that provides water for thousands of acres out here, uh, it is simply the channel for the water that helps grow the crops. We don't rejoice in the channel. It is the means for the life-giving water to go out. And that's the way faith is. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. And so faith is the means. We are not saved by faith alone. We are saved by grace alone. Faith is the channel which we receive God's gift of eternal life. It is not the cause of our salvation. Uh, this is so that none of us can boast of its faith. But faith is necessary and the only channel. And then the necessity of faith, it's a necessary means of salvation, but it is also necessary for our reliance upon God. We had time we could do a, a word study through Scripture, through the New Testament, on the usage of the word faith. The Greek word that's used there, no matter what it's form, it always indicates reliance on something or someone. And so when you think of faith, it is a reliance, it is cast 
to ourselves, that is putting ourselves in a position where we are relying on something or someone. So the necessity of faith. And then in scripture, distinguishes four different kinds of faith. There are kinds of faith that were revealed in scripture. First of all, there's an intellectual or historical faith. Uh, and it's simply this intellectual exercise. For instance, uh, I believe and I have faith that George Washington lived, that he was the father of our country, and I've even seen drawings of him and paintings. And so uh, the evidence leads me to the, to the place where I believe he act was an actual person and that he did good things and he was one of the founders of this nation. And yet I am not trusting in George Washington for anything, especially my eternal well-being. I am thankful that for the start that we had as a nation, but I am not trusting in George Washington personally. That's an intellectual or historical faith. And that kind of faith is seen in Scripture. It's a human faith, but it does not save us for everlasting life. There's also a usage of faith called miracle faith. Uh, and that is faith uh, to have a miracle performed or to receive a miracle. But that may not be accompanied by salvation. For instance, in Acts 14.9, Peter sees this man who's in desperate need of physical healing. And Peter somehow discerns that the man has faith that he can be healed. But that doesn't mean saving faith or historical faith. That is a miracle faith. That is that hope. And Peter responds to that. A third kind of faith is temporary faith. And uh, we see that in Luke 8, 13, John 6, 66. This illustrates uh, those kinds of faith. It seems similar to intellectual faith, but there's more of a personal interest involved. In John 6... Jesus gives some very hard teaching. And in John 6, 66, some of, the, says some of the disciples went away. They left. They, they did no longer follow Jesus. Uh, there's only a couple of, of understandings of that passage. Either you say they were saved and lost their salvation, or they were never saved. They simply had an intellectual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which I believe is what happened there. So there's a temporary faith. And then the other kind of faith, of course, is saving faith, saving faith. This is reliance on the truth of the gospel is revealed in God's word for us. Of course, Hebrews 11, chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, is, is a central passage on faith. Of course, chapter 11, the great faith chapter, which lists all of these individuals, some named, some not named, uh, uh, great, we often call them heroes of the faith. But they exercise faith. And in that verse 1 of Hebrews 11, the King James Version, if you use that version, tells us that it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The New American Standard Bible, which is what I use, uh, in this same verse says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is based on facts. Faith is based on facts. The gospel is a statement of definite historical facts that the Old Testament saints were confident would occur and the New Testament saints looked back on as having already occurred. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter says, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, said Paul. And then he made it clear exactly what the gospel is, how that Christ died for our sins according to to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to scriptures. 
There are three tremendous facts in that one sentence out of the Bible. First of all, the substitutionary death of Christ, the atonement of Christ, his burial, and his resurrection for each one of us. But faith is more than just a recognition of facts. A person may know about Christ as revealed in the Bible, yet not have real faith in Christ as his personal Savior. I think of a professor that I know, Dr. Bruce Walke, uh, probably the premier Old Testament scholar, the Hebrew scholar. And uh, he relates a story about studying in Jerusalem, and his neighbor in the apartment building was also an Old Testament scholar, but yet not saved, did not know Jesus Christ as Savior. And Bruce Walke could quote any passage in Hebrew out of the Old Testament, and the man would finish the whole paragraph by memory. Wow, what an amazing, amazing thing. But yet the man did not know Jesus Christ. He knew the Old Testament in the original languages. He could, he could quote it verbatim and yet did not know the coming Messiah. And so you can know a lot about the Bible and yet not have faith. It's more than recognition of the facts. In fact, James tells us in chapter 2 that uh, Satan and the demons, the fallen angels, believe in God to the extent that they fear for him. It's an intellectual faith. It is not a saving faith. They fear him. They tremble. Faith is being fully persuaded that the facts of Scripture and the claims of Jesus Christ are true and trustworthy. If you're using the bulletin outline, there's one more point that slipped off your page. And it's the final point, number four, the facets of faith. The facets of faith. Uh, we had, when we lived in Wisconsin, we got to know uh, a man and his wife. They were jewelers down in North Milwaukee. And uh, they, we go in and visit with them because we were in the process of buying a diamond ring. And he would explain all the things about diamonds, you know, kind of clarity, all of that stuff. And, uh, but he would show us the different diamonds and different cuts. And the diamond has different facets. And you can't see the whole thing at once. You're looking at one side, you're looking at a facet. Well, faith has facets like a diamond. The first one is this intellectual facet, this understanding, this accumulation of the facts by your mind, by your mental processes. This involves a factual and positive recognition of the truth of the gospel and the person of Christ. Well, we know it goes beyond that. Another facet, there's the intellectual facet. Now there's an emotional facet, or our affections, our affections. The truth and the person of Christ are now seen in an absorbing way. In other words, it becomes more personal than just an intellectual ascent. There is the affections of, our, of ourselves that we uh, go to that. And then there's a volitional facet, the will uh, each individual appropriates personally the truth and the person and places our reliance upon him. These three facets may be, be distinguished. They may be integrated when saving faith takes place. Uh, the person believes in Christ with all his being, not just his intellect, emotions, or will. It's the whole package of intellect, emotions, and will, or understanding, affections, and volition. In other words, it's a package. That's what I mean by fully persuaded that what God's Word says is true to our lives. Perhaps one of the most clearest statements necessary uh, to saving faith is found when the Lord Jesus Christ has that conversation with the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman. Uh, he said that if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, 
You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, John chapter 4. Know about the gift of the person, and then you ask and receive eternal life. It's believing in Jesus, the fact of who he is. Stuart McAllister, who works with Rabbi Zacharias in their apologetic ministry, they speak all over the world. But Stuart McAllister, in 1981, was part of a missionary trip uh, whose primary task was to help the, uh, the church in Eastern Europe, which was then under communist rule. It was in the Iron, Iron Curtain by transporting Bibles, hymn books, and Christian literature to the believers behind the Iron Curtain. On one occasion, Stuart McAllister and his team, while they were attempting to cross the border from Australia to then communist rule Czechoslovakia, they were arrested and thrown into prison after the border guards discovered their cache of Bibles and hymn books and other literature. Stuart wrote a comment afterwards, after he was released, he wrote this uh, word, uh, or these uh, paragraphs. He said, in such circumstances, we are forced to face what we mean when we speak of faith. Do we have to believe in spite of the Do we have to believe in spite of the evidence to the contrary? Do we believe no matter what? How do we handle the deep and pressing questions our own minds bring as our expectations and reality do not meet? He goes on to say, for me in my time in prison, I expected God to do certain things and to do them in a sensible way and in a sensible time. I expected that God would act fairly quickly and that, he, that I would sense his intervention. My reading of scripture, my grasp of God's promises, my trust in the reliability of God's word, the teaching I had received, and the message I had embraced that led me to expect certain things and in a particular way. When this did not occur in the way I was expecting or in the timing I thought it should, I was both confused and angry. Stuart McAllister goes on to write, since I had never given any conscious thought to the worldviews in general, mine in particular, I was unaware of how many unexamined assumptions I was living by. I did not realize how little change had penetrated my heart, and under pressure the gaps were painfully revealed and felt. From the perspective of time, I can now answer these questions meaningfully, but I needed the experience of doubt and hardship to show me how much I did not know or was not rooted in the biblical answers to these core questions. A worldview merely, that merely answers questions intellectually is insufficient. It must also meet us existentially where we have to live. In other words, faith is exercised in the crucible of testing. In those issues in our life that seem so adverse, so out of control, so difficult, that is when faith takes over. Just like this week, the shooting of the students down in Roseburg. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. We want to make some sense out of it. We want to put handles on those kinds of things. And yet, sometimes there is no answer right now. And that is an opportunity to exercise faith in a good God, a loving God, an all-powerful God, even though the event doesn't seem to make sense or correspond with what the Bible says about God. Rabbi Zacharias says, faith is the confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power, so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. My confidence remains because of who he is, and the only way I know who he is is how he's revealed himself 
in his word. No matter where you're at this morning, there are at least four applications that I've come across in this. And this has more been more of a theological word study uh, than a verse-by-verse exposition. But when I think of faith, and I think of Peter, he's going through these eight qualities, and it begins with our faith. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have exercised faith and belief in Christ for your eternal well-being. As I think about the struggles in each one of our lives, and each person here is a representative of a certain, uh, a certain situation, a certain case of circumstances which may be very positive. It's usually mixed up, positive and negative. Some of you perhaps are going through some very dark days and very adverse circumstances. But one thing I've thought about in application, there are four principles of this whole issue of faith. First of all, Remember that your character should always be stronger than your circumstances. Your character should always be stronger than your circumstances because there is very little in our lives that we control. When you really think about it, what do you really control in your life? Uh, there's very little about what we can control. And in those, but we can always uh, choose to control how we respond to our circumstances. And so when we're in those difficult times, when we choose faith, when we choose a thankful heart, regardless of what we're going through. First Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Your character should always be stronger than your circumstances. Secondly, uh, remember that your struggles always lead to strength. Your struggles always lead to strength. This is something that as we lay down at night, and I've, I've challenged you before, when your head hits the pillow, think about God's sovereignty. And his sovereignty is defined as he has control of all things. For his providence, he is controlling all things for his glory and for the good of his people. And reflect upon that. But remember, your struggles always lead to strength. Every difficulty in your life, whether big or small, is something that God will use to produce more strength, faith, and perseverance if we allow him. In other words, if we cooperate. All your pain has a purpose. Not one tear will be wasted. And we need to trust God for that. Romans 8, 28, and we know all things work together for good for those who love him and been called according to his purpose. The third application is remember that God's timing is always perfect. He's never too early and he's never too late. You know, we Americans, uh, we run by the clock and yet God has perfect timing. God's plans are always different. It seems like from our plans, but his plans are always perfect. And that's where that little word wait, which is, we think of waiting as, as a non-active thing, which is waiting is, is the verb, is to wait for him. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11. Finally, the fourth application is remember that God will never leave your side. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may feel like you're all alone, that you're going through your struggles all alone or your difficulties or whatever it is you face, but uh, he will be beside, he, he is beside you to the very end, for the very consummation of your life and into the new life. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. It goes back to that whole issue of faith, doesn't it? And God has given us the power to live lives daily of godliness. 
He gives us that power. When we cooperate with him, our faith grows even in the midst of difficult things. Let me pray as the men come up to help serve communion today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you that you've given us faith. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you as Savior. Lord, I pray you open their eyes to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. That you would demonstrate to them that whatever they're putting their faith in, whether it's good works or uh, whatever it is, Lord, that you would show that that is uh, not going to last for eternal life. And we pray, Lord, they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, even today, in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>